So I was going to the mall, the ABC mall uh, near Verdun, which is uh, near to the south of the city. Uh, and I was listening to the latest episode of this, uh, this lovely podcast about the, uh, the OYO hotel scam that doesn't make sense. Uh, and uh, I was walking past an army checkpoint. There are a lot of them in the city. They're not uncommon. Uh, but I didn't hear them. And I was walking into a restricted area. I was just kind of laughing along, you know, talking about the upholstery and, oh, wow, what a, what a, what a system. Uh, and then I heard one of them whistle at me, uh, not, not in the sexual way, but, but in a way to signal me. Um, and he had, he had uh, his hands on his, his Kalashnikov, his AK-47, and he directed me <laughs> to get the hell out of the area. <laughs> because you were doing the virgin walk with, like, the headphones <laughs> I was, I was. <laughs> Oh, very, you should very... have been doing. You should have been doing the Chad walk, listening to the Romaniacs. <laughs> That's true. God, how, <laughs> then, how many people has our podcast killed or almost killed? Oh well, there is uh, one. One fan of ours did get run over by a car while jogging and listening to us. <laughs> uh, Was I, he wearing he... a shirt that said "Ouch"? That is the question. <laughs> <laughs> He's fine, but uh, we did give him a free shirt. Note, do not get yourself a free shirt by getting yourself run over by a car. But that is not a way we endorse. did we give him a shirt or did we say we were going to and then be too no, lazy we did. to do it? Okay, we did do it. All we, right, just, just want to okay, confirm. Sure. So, if, so I think that's that puts the um, people put in direct mortal danger by our podcast to two that we know about. <laughs> also means that we have been militarily defeated by the Lebanese army. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome back to Trash Future, the podcast that has nearly claimed a couple of lives by accident. Uh, <laughs> I am I am Riley, and I'm here in studio with Hussein, who's on the boards. On the boards, probably fucking this up. Like I feel, I look at these kind of, I'm looking at these bars right now, and I'm just feeling so anxious that like, <laughs> um, that, like Nate's just gonna like disown me, and I'm gonna end up like having to go to like Trigger Pod to like get a job. <laughs> uh, so any complaints with the uh, with the audio at Alex Keeley? Mm. At Alex Keeley. from the past there. Yes. Uh, we also have Nate, who got distracted by doing some DIY and is calling in. I'm calling in from home in the house that podcasting built because I was building a dresser with Milo Edwards and I forgot what time it was and realized it was so late. I couldn't get in in time and I didn't want to uh, just be a no-show on my own program. So here I am podcasting from my house from my office. See, 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 this is the problem with like big wife. Because once you like sight, once you like get in the pocket of big wife, like you can no longer just like sleep on a mattress on the floor, and you can no longer <laughs> like just keep like bowls in a box. You have to build yeah. shelves. You, you you have to you have to get out of the wife deal. Is the thing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the the the, the poly bonds of the JCPOA. Mm. Uh, we also have Alice calling in from neutral Glasgow. Yes, we do. I think it's very optimistic, by the way, that you think we've only killed people on accident. <laughs> um, and we also have uh, from from sunny Beirut, uh, Seamus Malakavzili. Seamus, how are you doing today? Uh, I'm doing very well. I'm I'm enjoying the lovely neighborhood uh, and all that Lebanon has to offer. Um, so if you if you don't know, uh, Seamus is an an, an 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 analyst, a journalist covering Iran. He's 
actually is fluent in Farsi, and he's one of the most sort of knowledgeable people that that you can talk to about this uh, situation going on. I imagine that's why you're in Beirut now. You're not just there on on holiday like Pete Buttigieg went to Somaliland. <laughs> no, no, no. I am I'm currently uh, going to the American University of Beirut mm. uh, to study media and communication, and sure, additionally um, also uh, do journalism here that I can't do in <laughs> Eugene, Oregon. <laughs> you, you're on a long hiking trip like Shane Bauer. <laughs> I, I, Jesus Christ, I'm going to cross it. Ah, yes, the three people on Skype really get that one. <laughs> Look, you have to leave it in because people will like it, but. I, I, I know Shane Bauer. This is why I like, I'm a little bit like, uh. Um, okay. So. Uh, we are. We have uh, another Iran episode today, where we're going to talk about um, what the what the U.S. Iran relationship means, what it means for the U.S. to be an imperial power in in the 21st century, how that's different from how it used to be and how it's the same. But first of all, we have to revisit some old friends. We must. We must revisit some old friends because sometimes, sometimes there is a letter that is sent. Sometimes these are significant letters of history. Mm. And one, one has been sent most recently. Dear Zoom team members. That was a weird way for the Iraqi parliament to open that withdrawal letter. <laughs> <laughs> I always get confused with like Zoom and Zoon. Oh, yes. Zoon user, uh, send us a message <laughs> if you're out there. If, you're still, if there's the one person who's still listening to our podcast on a Zoom, please do tell us. No, so... Um, there has been a letter sent by the CEO of Zoom, uh, a SoftBank-backed, quote-unquote, Amazon of food um, by the CEO, basically informing them of the following. Since Zoom was founded nearly five years ago, we have been blessed with an opportunity to invent brave and innovative solutions intended to improve our global food system. Uh, by the way, just, just for everyone counting at home and as a reminder, their innovation was... A truck that makes pizza while it drives to you. Oh, that is brave. Yeah. It, <laughs> it, it was brave in the face of food critics who all said it sucked. Um, they say. Who's clamoring for this? <laughs> it gets so much better so fast. I can't even begin to describe it. Um, so without recapitulating too much old ground, just so we know what we need to know for this, Zoom was a startup that was a couple of pizza delivery vans in San Francisco that made the pizza robotically on its way to you. But actually what it did is just it finished and reheated it and then sliced it robotically on its way to you. It was still mostly made by people in a warehouse. Um, it was horrible. It almost failed, was rescued by SoftBank with a $4 billion valuation. Then they did 30 different projects at once, one of which was spending two weeks Googling pizza boxes to try to invent a new one. And what they invented was a round one. But the revolution was that it was made from plant fibers. Unlike cardboard, which isn't made of plant fibers, it's like a moon material that doesn't grow on, on Earth naturally, of course. Mm, it's made of tree anyway. fibers, which trees are different from plants. Yeah, they're um, they're they're animal, vegetable, mineral tree. Mm. Um, that's the the Zoom food pyramid. Anyway, the letter goes on. Our because when the CEO sends you a letter that says, "Since Zoom was nearly founded five years ago, you know it's good." Mm -hmm. Ours is a broad agenda, including new methods to produce food, deliver it, and package it in increasingly sustainable ways. 
Today, our mission is the same and requires the same bold thinking, but with increased focus. I'm going to pause here. Who do? What do we think the theme of this letter is? You're all losing What are they announcing? Yeah, everybody fired. Clean, <laughs> clean out your shit. Uh, <laughs> security Seamus? will be escorting you. Seamus, what do you think the theme of this letter is? I, I, I'm, I'm going to have to agree with Alice here. Uh, this, this, this is the perfect, like, grandiose intro to people mm, that everyone is going to starve to death. We have been blessed with this opportunity to, yeah, no, everybody's so fired. <laughs> We've been blessed with this opportunity to right-size our organization. Yeah. This, this was the company, because I, I, I think I was away when you recorded this, but this was the company that, like, made the kind of round box, right? Correct, yeah. And like there was no point building this box. Um, so my my thinking is is that someone has been like, well, why don't we put it in a box that's shaped like an octagon? <laughs> oh, because yeah, it, 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 it tessellates. You can stack right. more of it. <laughs> so it's the it's the perfect it's the perfect like midway point between a circle and a square. And there's a co-branding opportunity with the UFC. Mm. <laughs> Just step inside the pizza octagon. <laughs> no, no, it will still taste like dog shit because they're committed to like making it with as many robots as possible. Uh, no, so the next paragraph of the letter goes: As we move forward with this new strategy, uh, I, this is uh, points for Alice and Seamus. Yeah. Many of the current roles at Zoom <laughs> will no longer exist. <laughs> they no snap. You're not doing anything to them. They just no longer exist. But, yeah, it's like the Twilight Zone episode with the little boy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They've um, they've um. What happens is that they've been caught in a time travel paradox, and now many of the roles at Zoom have been terminated before they actually begun. <laughs> you ju- you're just looking at the big photo wall of all the employees and seeing in horror yourself fading out of it. Yeah, just everyone, everyone in almost every division, like sales, marketing, robotic pizza operations, <laughs> just photos all fading. But they just go on. And we regret we must say goodbye to a number of our valued friends and fellow, get ready for this one, Zoomers. Oh, no. <laughs> Next thing you know, they're all going to become trad. They're all going to fucking throw <laughs> their true. beers and wear sundresses and be very decent. <laughs> yeah, like, zo- what is Zoom pizza but trad wife food gore at an industrial <laughs> scale, but that never escaped San Francisco? Yes. <laughs> That's horrifying. Yo, it's basically, it's trad wife food gore, but it's the Jetsons. It's all the politics <laughs> of the Jetsons with all the automation of the Jetsons and all of the corporate, like, commercial feasibility of the companies in the Jetsons. Um, it, the letter goes on. These decisions were incredibly difficult, as we could not have reached our current success without the talents of these same people. What's it, what? What success? Wait, what's, you're, what, you're, what's you're firing success? everybody from your box company. <laughs> <laughs> also, it's like, it's like, okay, so you couldn't have reached your current success without the talents of these same people. Fuck off, though. Bye. Yeah. Bye forever. Yeah. I, also, like, I just, I know in my heart that the talents that they're talking about and the employees that they're talking about is one person who knows how to make a 3D model of a box and 50 social media people. And <laughs> just, yeah. No, I feel bad for them. Uh, but in terms of the talents, the talent that's being deployed is mostly making people on podcasts aware of you. <laughs> I mean, yeah. success. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah absolutely. Yeah. Like if, you're, if your measure of success is being mentioned on Trash Future 
three separate times. Congratulations, you did it. Three-time um, champion. So what they've actually done um, is they have closed down every single element of their business except the <laughs> one that ever made an actual sale, which is their box division. <laughs> <laughs> so that's it then. After 20 years of service, goodbye and good luck. Well, I don't recall saying good luck. No, of course, the correct Simpsons reference here is, I don't know what kind of world-changing startup you're thinking of. We just make boxes here. (laughs) Yeah, they literally just make boxes here now. So basically they've decided that because they they invented making cardboard out of plants, a thing that's never been done before, they now have the future (laughs) in their own hands, which is to make round pizza boxes, and they don't need to make pizza, or but they're still a tech company somehow. (laughs) Yes, they're still still very much a tech company. Now they're not handcuffed to their failing uh, pizza division. They can just make boxes in all kinds of new varieties and dimensions. The world's their oyster. (laughs) They they can make a box that's like a Dyson sphere. They can... They can make a box that's a hypercube. Yeah, I, I love to like open my special containment vessel to like get at my fucking uh like I don't know, my parcel of sex dildos or whatever. Um so like also here's the other thing, and this is Seamus, like I can't help but thinking someone listening to this right now is so mad that these morons were given just billions and billions of dollars in Saudi oil, or given a billion <laughs> dollars valuation in Saudi oil wealth, that they're just, like, on purpose going to walk through a checkpoint. <laughs> they're, they're, they're just gonna stop holding on to any railing that they're holding on to. Like, don't do that. Stay safe. Uh, do not let do not let the content of this show blackpill you. Yeah, just, just, just wearing my stilettos out in an icy morning. Uh, yeah, wonderful. Um, okay, I'm gonna say one more thing about this, and then we're gonna move on to some Iran stuff. Uh, <laughs> this is from a previous interview in June. This is about the packaging. This is why it's such a unique product. Uh, Alex Garden says, We take the sugar cane and turn it into something wonderfully compostable. <laughs> Essentially... <laughs> uh, I, oh, I mean, oh, okay, okay. I, I, I know... You can't you can't compost pizza boxes though. Well, these the grease gets on it. You can't because the just can't recycle it. What? Yeah. No, this this will this will repel the grease because it's like made of leaves. Yeah. Okay. Don't worry. They're going to invent next the greaseless pizza. Ah. Oh. Okay. Okay. So the roundabout way. Okay. (laughs) What What if What if they had an idea where if you could fold the pizza in half, that way the grease stays inside. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Your new startup, it's Calzone, but it just has all of the vowels removed, so it's just like mm. I'm going to do a startup called Cal No Go Zone. Mm. <laughs> uh, essentially, he continues. As we scale more, it helps save the world. Oh. Yeah, fucking well, why not? Yeah. Why not? <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, okay, sure. It is written in multiple, uh, multiple pieces of scripture. Whoever makes a better pizza box saves the life of the world entire. Oh, is that a hadith? I mean, um, I didn't know that the Talmud was about pizza, but I wouldn't be surprised, all things considered. We just have well, like an hour-long halakhic discussion about whether or not you can apply that to the creation of pizza boxes. 
Should man create pizza boxes in the image that God created them in? <laughs> um, I love the idea, what? but also that it would be like the Talmud, that there was someone would be arguing that, and then another person, like, 100 years later, would be like, you're a fucking idiot, and you're an affront to God. <laughs> in a way, the first podcasters. Mm. <laughs> oh my goodness, you're right. So yeah, that's uh, that's our update with Zoom. Um, they pivoted away from whatever it was they were doing and have pivoted towards some new shit. And I'm excited to see what they pivot to next. Hmm. Um, maybe financial services. You know, perhaps they could just take all the money that they've been given by SoftBank and just put it all on wouldn't, red. Wouldn't it like make sense that they would pivot to like a DNA company? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Using true. this like spit samples from like pizza crusts mm. oh yeah you can pay. there won't oh, be any spit because it's greaseless pizza so it just sucks oh, shit, all the yeah. moisture out of your mouth you, yeah, you're, just, you're maybe... just like dying of dehydration eating this slice of pizza as it just like <laughs> like a lemon like it just fucking sucks all of the like water out of your body no you you pay for it by spitting into a vial and then they own your dna <laughs> that's how it's gonna work okay so as anyway uh, alex garden says as we scale more it helps save the world and as of the recording of this episode, we seem to have narrowly avoided a global conflagration, not actually because of the restraint shown by the Iranian government in response to sort of multiple and uh, U.S. provocations increasing in intensity, but instead because Alex Garden, CEO of Zoom Pizza, now Zoom Box Factory, has saved the world by doing some shit with sugarcane. So I guess we can cancel the Iran section. Hmm. Yeah, just we Our just do. Fun. <laughs> yeah, we just do more box apologetics instead. Yeah. Um. So, uh, Seamus. Um. Now that n we no longer need to talk about Iran, are you cool talking about boxes for the next forty-five yeah. minutes? Well, what's your perfect Sunday? Oh God! Take out the cardboard <laughs> box. Just sitting it all day. Just, just soaking the air. Um. Okay. So. Unfortunately, we live in the real world where Alex Garden has not been able yet to <laughs> save the world from some unspecified yeah, well, not threat. With, not with that attitude, Riley. Yeah, well, not well, yet. A couple yeah, days, man. Yeah. Stop being so defeatist about this. Look, Alex Garden just needs to find the right pivot, and then he can save the world from whatever well, threat he, we're well, saving his, it from with a round box. His pitch can basically be like every country where like Zoom operates, there'll be no wars, right? Same with like, didn't the McDonald's? McDonald's yeah. Right. Yeah, the democratic Zoom peace theory. <laughs> well, that was proven wrong though. Oh, right. Yeah, well, that yeah. was proven wrong in Georgia, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not even real anymore, man. Nothing's real. I mean, technically that was a franchise of McDonald's. So oh, actually, um, yeah, yeah come everyone's on. Everyone's like sinecure job at the Atlantic writing about how like, you know, two like two countries in which the X factor has been broadcast have never put economic sanctions on one another or whatever. <laughs> uh, they can all keep their jobs because they were technically right. Um, oh, so uh, I we don't live in that world. We live in a world of, of messy imperialist shit. And uh, we're going to talk a little bit about it. So I'm going to do a little bit of a table setting right now. Um, and then, Seamus, I'm going to ask you if I've missed anything from my summary of the situation. A beautiful tablescape you're going to craft <laughs> yes. for us. So uh, a group of, uh, of uh, Iranian-backed protesters in Iraq basically owned the U.S. embassy really hard uh, some days ago. The U.S. responded to this with the international version of, hey, you get off my lawn, which to them is, of course, assassinating one of the most powerful, important, and beloved figures in Iran. 
Iran responded to this with an outpouring of national grief, clarifying to the world that their cheers of death to America is a political statement about America's leadership and general role as a global menace, and then conducted a hyper-competent missile attack that basically involved a circus-level trick shooting, so they only leveled the porta-potties of several U.S.-occupied bases, but they didn't quite stick the landing and also accidentally shot down a Ukrainian jetliner, and all the people who supported the U.S. shooting down an Iranian passenger airliner in 1988 are not taking the shut the fuck up forever wagging your finger at Iran challenge. Trump then said all is well, and Rouhani has made it clear that direct hostilities won't increase further. Seamus, have I more or less summarized the situation, and what have I missed? Uh, okay. Uh, I, I'm just going just gonna to need to clarify a few things. Uh, uh, just, 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 yeah, that, <laughs> it's, it's, fi- it's fine. Uh, please, so please the, get my ass. Okay, so the group of protesters in Iraq, uh, just, just for some clarification, they weren't just there were a different set of protesters than the ones that were uh, protesting the Iraqi government previously. And also there was a lot of uh, militia members who were running back in that crowd and they attempted to break in. Um, after that, uh, the, the, the phrase uh, circus level trick shooting, uh, at, at least um, uh, there was, uh, I think a map uh, satellite photo that was released that showed uh that they had hit the air control tower uh, as well as some barracks. So I wouldn't, wouldn't say it was just porta potties. Uh, I don't know. I don't know if there were porta potties in those, uh, in the buildings that were hit. Uh, and uh, also, yeah, the, the Ukrainian jetliner was after, <laughs> after making, after making, I mean, the, the, that, that wound is still very, very fresh in that Iran tried it's utmost to avoid basically all American casualties or Iraqi casualties by alerting people and uh, maneuvering around it. Uh, and only an hour after attempting to b- be that diligent, they immediately accidentally blow up an airplane full of 176 people. That is like absolutely the timeline that, that that is the perfect timeline that we live in is to play this beautiful aria on a Stradivarius for an hour and a half and have everybody wrapped and silent and then on the final note just taking the violin and like turning it upside down in your hands winding up and aiming it directly at your own dick just incredible <laughs> it, it it's it, it's just <sighs> It's it's just an incredible fuck up of just yeah. insane proportions, like, ugh. And, and I'll I'll go into the ramifications of it uh, later on. But it, it it's truly incredible how badly. I mean, not not to put it uh, in, I guess, light terms, but how badly they they blew this layup, where they had the propaganda victory of retaliating against the United States in a way that also did not result in further retaliation from the United States, uh, but then killed hundreds of their own citizens and then immediately destroyed all the national unity that they have cultivated because of Soleimani's death. And now, uh, as we're recording this, there are protesters out in the streets of Tehran uh, calling for the resignation of uh, Khamenei. So, uh, good job, guys. Resign, bitch. You did it. Like, <laughs> resign, bitch. Just, just incredible. Hey, uh, do, do, uh, has SoftBank soft been an investment, had made an investment in the, in the like, Iraqi air defense forces? Like, how the fuck did this happen? No, it, it, it's, okay, so I, I can explain, because um, the head of the uh, IRGC Aerospace Division uh, gave a press conference today, 
And the, the level of structural insanity that led up to this point, uh, it's, it's, this is a rare admission of guilt from the Iranian government uh, about really anything wrong that they've done. So uh, essentially the story is um, right after the, right after on Wednesday, when the, uh, when the attack on al Assad air base happened, um, there was a heightened state of alert, obviously. And there was a call out to put in a no fly zone over Iran because of the threat of possibly cruise missiles uh, or, from, you know, from American retaliation that was not honored uh, because there were a lot of airlines, uh, airplanes already in the air. And there were departures that were already coming out from Tehran airport uh, at the time that the missiles were flying. So eight flights uh, have departed from Tehran airport with no issue, no, no issue at all. But then this Ukraine international airplane is flying and it shows up as a blip on the radar in this, uh, in this anti-aircraft battalion operator, only one guy. He sends a message back to his commander because he's worried that this could be a cruise missile. And the tweet by uh, Trump threatening cultural sites in Iran had put him on, on, on a heightened state of alert. He doesn't receive a response back for 10 seconds. And he doesn't wait more than 10 seconds, but he thinks uh, that the, the threat of the cruise missile is so great in potentially that he, he fires the missile at the jetliner. And uh, in about a couple seconds, it's, it's, it's uh, in flames and it takes about two minutes uh, for it to hit the ground. Uh, if, if you just waited a couple seconds longer and the, the commander on the other line had been able to figure out the communication issue, uh, then this could have been avoided. Um, and after that, there was just this absolute fiasco uh, that that occurred with this cover up that uh, there there was so on Wednesday apparently the uh, elements of the IRGC knew that this had been an accidental shoot down and they wanted to to explain it and and this is the official government story it's the sanitized version I don't know if it's it's accurate or not but even in this version it's quite damning um, so they they went to higher ups in the IRGC to like we need we need to we need to like talk about this. Um, but instead the people who knew about the missile shoot down were quarantined and were prevented from speaking to the higher ups. And this means that, uh, the Supreme leader, uh, the president, um, all, uh, the higher ups in the IRGC aviation officials who had to give out a press conference that, uh, there was no missile shoot down. They were certain of it. They didn't know. Uh, so, <laughs> They were deliberately prevented from explaining the truth about this matter. And for three days, uh, they were just uh, Iranian aviation officials were saying this was a mechanical error. This was a mechanical error. Um, we're going to do an investigation two years long. Uh, we're going to invite all the uh, other countries into this. We're going to figure this out. Uh, but then uh, the United States said that they had intelligence uh, saying that this was a missile shootdown. Yeah, it was and a cell phone video, right? Like there were, after after that, very very shortly after that, there was a cell phone video that came out, and uh, it very quickly was geolocated, and it wasn't just a random cell phone video; it was in the area that it happened. And there were there were concerns from people uh, like at the gray zone that it was it was potentially faked, it was unverifiable. Uh, but then there was a second cell phone video that came out uh, that showed the similar angle, similar location. 
uh, showing the exact same scenario occurring. And it became pretty clear at that point that um, you don't have to trust the U.S. like the U.S. intelligence on this. You don't have to. You don't have to only go on that. Like there, there's videos of it. There's eyewitness accounts of it. Um, there, there's video. There's images of the debris. There's even an image potentially showing like the missile itself on the ground. Uh, and then uh, the Iranian aviation uh, official gave a press conference uh, yesterday saying that we're going to do investigation, but we are certain with, with complete charity that there was no missile involved in this attack. There was no missile fired. And then later that night, there was, there was um, a message went out to the Iranian press saying that they were going to reveal the real reason behind the uh, Ukrainian jetliner going down, uh, which surprised a lot of people since they just had a press conference explaining that. Uh, and then, of course, today they admitted to it. The IRGC commander came out and said that he wished he was dead and that he didn't want to see this. Uh, people are calling for uh, IRGC officials to resign. Um, I, just politicians and representatives uh, from all stripes are apologizing and uh, just uh, just a very, very, very large outpouring of grief and admission of guilt that is very, very rare for the Iranian government. Well, I mean, they did kill a lot of Iranians, right? Like, that's got to be part yeah, of that yeah. the majority. The majority of uh, the people on the Ukrainian jet were uh, Iranians. More specifically, a lot of them were Canadian Iranians. Um, there were lots of people. There were there were images that were spread around the uh, uh, newspapers and Persian outlets. Um, a lot of people were coming back from like weddings, uh, birth, like birthday parties, um, study abroad trips. Uh, it, it, everybody, uh, a lot of Iranian journalists that I spoke to, uh, they either knew someone who was on that plane or they knew someone who knew someone who was on that plane and diaspora communities, you know, they talk with their family back in Iran. It's a very, very personal tragedy to a lot of people. So, and, and additionally into that, um, you're all familiar with, uh, Iran air flight 655, right? Yes. You mentioned we'll, that we'll you mentioned get into the this in a bit, I suspect, but yeah. Yeah. Uh, that that national trauma of having a flight shot down by the United States, it's still very, very fresh in the minds of a lot of Iranians. So to have that happen again by your own government, it, 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 it's not something that you just kind of easily whisk away and you say, oh, sorry, you know, it's all good. It's an accident. You know, no hard feelings. No, <laughs> things, it, things it are going to get very, very difficult. It is the hell timeline because of all of the things that could have gone wrong. Like, if they had killed a hundred something people literally any other way than just shooting down a commercial airliner with a surface to air missile, it wouldn't have been as acute uh, a, a fuck up, I think. Uh, so, Seamus, I want to ask you then, right? Because I was listening to you on. Um, the Popular Front podcast, which uh, is a, a sort of an independent um, conflict studies, like military affairs podcast. And it's very good. And I urgently recommend anyone who wants to listen to the story of who Soleimani was and what his significant was to, was to Iran. I suggest you listen to that that show that you were on. Uh, we'll link it in the description. Um, but you were talking about how Soleimani, when he was killed, it was this sort of national rallying moment for Iran because he was seen as sort of beyond the domestic politics of the country, even though he was a 
he had political beliefs himself that were quite to the right, sort of anti-communist and so on. Um, he was seen as this, as as a national, sort of like a, like a national, a figure of national respect. And when he was killed, there was this moment of unity among a relatively, you know, disunited and, and somewhat fractious like polity. And now, after the downing of, of of the airliner, we have sort of Iran has kind of lost that moment of unity. Uh, that would that would be an accurate uh, assessment of that. Yeah, there was in between the uh, the strike on al-Assad and now when they admitted that they accidentally shot it down and there was a there was a bit of time where uh there was discussion about whether or not the ukraine international had been sh- had been shot down or if it was a mechanical error uh there was kind of this limbo that many uh iranians were in because they had been clamoring for a lot of them have been clamoring for revenge they've been clamoring for uh hard severe retaliation um, and the Iranian media, despite the fact that it's, it's kind of clear that they were trying to avoid American and Iraqi casualties, uh, in the media, they had been claiming, uh, that 80 American soldiers had been killed, uh, hundreds more injured, uh, that this was a massive catastrophic loss for the United States army. Um, I don't think really many people bought that, at least from my impression. Um, but there was this limbo where you know, what's going to, what's going to come next. If Trump isn't really escalating the situation and Iran has made it clear that they are not going to escalate the situation, it's, it's, if it's still a slap in the face to Trump as, uh, their propaganda, as Iranian propaganda likes to, uh, state about it, but it's not, it's not, it's not this, uh, the, the thing that I would, the, there's a, there's a, there's a movie that I would reference for the fantasy that many Iranians would hope would happen uh it's a cgi animated movie called battle of the persian gulf 2 uh, it's a movie uh envisioning a world where awesome Soleimani he hears news that uh, that america is going to invade through the strait of hormuz and he's tasked with fighting off the invasion and it ends with a massive kinetic strike from space that destroys the entire american navy in this massive like like thing like it's this huge explosion that kills thousands of people and that's kind of the nationalistic fervor that i think a lot of people whipped up into and after this no americans dead um still slap but it's not it's not much but after that there was that limbo period and then as we're kind of waiting for the american governments and the iranian governments to make their next move uh the admittance of the jetliner being shut down happens and all of that, that kind of nationalistic unity, all of that, putting aside our, our differences to unite against the American enemy, uh, that all kind of wilts away very, very, very quickly. Uh, when you put it like that, I'm kind of surprised that they did admit to it. Like, by that point, why not just kind of brazen it out, deny everything, and just sort of let people live with the ambiguity? That's, that's the thing. That's the thing that I think surprised a lot of people. And, it's, and it also seemed to surprise people who were active within the Iranian government, because uh, just before we started recording this, I saw a clip from uh, Iranian state TV. There was a reporter asking someone on the street, uh, should we have not admitted that we shut down this plane because this has given credence to our enemies? Because it's given them ammo. That, that, that's certainly what that's that's what the gray zone people uh, 
that's that I think that was their thing going in was like even if it is obvious that this was an Iranian shootdown, why give the US the sort of the credit that attaches to yeah. that? Uh, wh- why not just deny everything? I think I think uh, after I mean there are a lot of factors into this, but after the Iranian protests that just happened a couple months ago, where at the very lowest estimate hundreds were killed. But the Iranian government has not released any casualty figures, um, dead or injured, to um, assuage any of these people's concerns about how many people were killed. So it's not like the Iranian government is necessarily, uh, it's not a commonplace thing to admit these things. But I think, considering the scale of the tragedy, that's one thing. But also, as I said before, Iran Air Flight 655, that... in the in, in the wake of that kind of tragedy, when you have that kind of historical reference point, do you really want to go down? There, there are certain points that even the Iranian government will not cross. Do you really want to go down as the administration that lied to the Iranian people about a tragedy that befell the country 30 years ago, that same kind of tragedy? Yeah, it's too stark a contra. Points. And I, th- I think, in fact, the other, the other sort of point we can take from this as well um, is that this really gives the lie to the American view of what Iran uh, is like, mm-hmm. because the fact that, uh, like, in the um, in the American foreign policy imagination, Iran has no account. The Iranian government has zero accountability to any of its citizens and can lie and steal and oppress freely. And in the American government, imagine American foreign policy imagination. As far as the blob is concerned around D.C., um, they they wouldn't care about shooting down a liner of their own people. And the res- and the fallout from this entire incident has shown that that is. I mean, what we all knew all along, which is that is such a childish, a pointlessly Manichaean worldview applied right. to foreign policy. But it's also like a necessary and. Um... Can I? Yeah, sure, come on in. Thank the. Mic. Oh, sorry. Um, it's also like a necessary thing for them to like entertain because, um, with you know, and and I've kind of and I said this like from the outset, which is that, um, you know, this isn't kind of like the the killing of like Qasem Soleimani, uh, you know, this wasn't kind of the trigger that would like lead to a potential war. Like, people have wanted war in America. They've wanted war with Iran for a long time. Um, and the reason why is that like they have this view of what Iran needs to be because Iran needs to be set up in a particular way in order to kind of like legit like to quote unquote legitimately like wage a war against it. Um, and I think that kind of like what you've just said now is like a prime example of like the kind of vision that columnists are still portraying about Iran as being this like unaccountable, um, top down authoritarian. Uh, do you know what I mean? Yeah, um, well, it, yeah. in the British imagination, this is always framed in terms of the mullahs. Like, yeah, we want we have we have mullahs. What if we went back to miniskirts? Yeah, exactly. And in fact, that's there's. I, w- I was speaking with um someone who was sort of very active in foreign policy uh, in the eighties, and I was speaking to him about this episode specifically, um, and he was saying that what you when you're when you're thinking about the uh, Iran as it exists in the American imagination. I'm sort of serving this up to the to the group here so you can tell me if I'm right or wrong. He says that you you cannot overstate the extent to which the US and UK are disappointed when their ambition to create Iran is a Middle Eastern version of Japan, ultra western friendly, sort of um, 
that this sort of booming some kind of booming tech economy that they would largely have sort of like, some like control big guns and statues over. everywhere yeah just <laughs> no one knows why no one knows why <laughs> it, 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 those plans were frustrated by coming into contact with the reality of the country yeah you said it was Absolutely. like the loss of a lover yeah well i also mean just like mm, yeah sorry um, go ahead and and Seamus, I'm, I'm interested to hear what you have to say about that sort of theory, that there is this psychological wound that it cannot be found. I, I would agree uh, pretty much wholeheartedly uh, with that. Uh, j- just to address a point that you made earlier about Iran being accountable to its citizens, just to sort of go on a brief tangent here, if I may. Um, there, there's the, the, the real head-scratching problem about Iran is that it's both accountable to its citizens in some respects and also completely not. It, it's a, f- oh, like yeah, it, it's, it's frustratingly, um, I don't really know how to describe this. There's, there's a system in place that allows just enough dissent where you can criticize some policies, you can criticize, uh, some actions that are objectionable, even by these Islamic Republic standards. But when you try to criticize the system itself, the Islamic Republic system itself, uh, there's a massive uh, crackdown on that kind of thinking. You, you have to think about everything in terms of uh, the. You can't question the republic in that sense. You can't question the system itself. So, sort of like how um, how people like to characterize the deep state in its original form in Turkey, right? Like you can have however many changes of government you want, but you have to have the Republic or else. I, I think that's, I, I don't know too much about the Turkish deep state, but that sounds fairly accurate. It sounds fairly comparable. Well, I mean, that's, that's, that's kind of like, I, I I've been banging this drum for a while about um, whenever sort of Western liberals want to do this thing of, Oh, look at how backwards such and such a place is because uh, look at the laws that say you can't do this. Uh, I, I always want to point out that there's like the way that governments work, the way that laws work is a lot more flexible in practice than people understand. Uh, and there's always going to be some amount of like dissent or illegality or anything like that that's sort of quietly tolerated at some times and not at others. Um, and it, it, it's really difficult to get people uh, to understand that even about well even about their own countries but yeah but i think like so much of like the ire towards iran from uh like neo like neoconservatives and uh like just like liberal columnists and stuff tend to like they touch on the kind of structure of the islamic republic and i think for a lot of them like the what when it comes what it comes down to deep down is the fact that the islamic republic has like survived and shiism in the region has not only survived but it's kind of gained a lot of power to the point where like iran is a power broker in the middle east um which is why we're seeing lots of weird things where like all these kind of actual theocratic nations like saudi arabia and like these countries in the gulf all of a sudden like um, Western countries, the United States, are really keen on working with them. Yeah, They're really keen on working with guys. Yeah. And like right. the, the problem with Shia Islam to all of this sort of this columnist said or whatever is that we bet against it, and it, it we're not supposed to lose that bet. We went wholeheartedly in on the absolute worst people we could find just to like set the sort of to stack that sectarian divide in favor of uh, Sunnis and like. Yeah, no, you're not. You're not supposed to do that. You're supposed to like all, die quietly. But it also means that when we kind of talk about supporting dissenting Iranians, um, like often 
these the people who are kind of saying that we support like dis- like dissent in Iran, we support kind of left wing mm. kind of union but, movements yeah. in Iran. And like but the union movement in Ar- in Iran is like really big. It's like considerably big. I don't know if it's really big, but it's like considerably like larger than in most other countries in the region. And when you hear like leftists in the West like talk about, or like when you hear liberals in the West rather talking about like the problems of Iran, it's very rarely about that it's very rarely no, about like of actual not. kind of policies or laws it's always about like the aesthetics and fundamentally it's about like why has the islamic republic like no. survived well, they, they, they never they never uh i think understand uh the revolution and the way that that panned out and the involvement of socialists and communists and unionists and uh much more moderate clerics than harmony who eventually succeeded and like uh yeah, no, you're never going to get that that kind of understanding, and instead you're going to get, oh, we support the Iranian dissenters like uh, the Mujahideen Ekak. Uh, oh, my favorite, my favorite group. Yes, I was going to, I was going to mention yeah. Mujahideen Ekak as well, but also, I think the combination too from the the neoconservative and the 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 sort of rank and file American pro war pro military person, a lot of it, in my opinion, comes from. There's a certainly a generational thing with people, you know, older than me. I'm 35, older than me, who have some living memory of the hostage crisis, and then also uh, people who served in the U.S. military in Iraq uh, are convinced that everyone who killed an American soldier was actually operating under the orders of the Iranian government, or that, for example, things like explosively formed penetrators were all built in Iran, and the people who you know deployed them were Iranian and the Iranian militias you know were were killing American soldiers and to some extent there were Shia militias in Iraq that had a- allies and training and advising from people in Iran but the idea that the Iranian government was puppet mastering Iraqi opposition to the American occupation is absurd on its face but that's absolutely a thing that people not just in the DC establishment but in the kind of in my opinion that there's a general pro-war American subconscious absolutely well, believe it. That's why it's so wild that uh, killing Soleimani actually kind of came closest to making this real. Like, to, I think that's the only thing you could have done that could have made uh, Iraqi Shia nationalists make common cause that quickly and that readily with Iran would be to kill one of their guys next to one of Iran's guys in Iraq. And, and yeah. make, make it an absolute joke that you ever even once considered Iraq an actual sovereign state. Absolutely. Yeah. Just, just the absolute it, dumbest thing the United States has done in a yeah. very, very long time. It continues to like astound me when I keep having to talk about it. We talked about this on, <laughs> on What a Hell of a Way to Die, but basically we said there's the joke that you know when you get trained in this stuff in the military that you never give you know your commander a, a joke or a bad or an intentionally fake course of action to choose, but you certainly don't hand Donald Trump the option to fuck the moon, <laughs> and they did, and sure enough, Donald Trump got on the fucking Apollo spacecraft and went up and stuck his dick in the moon rocks, <laughs> and now we're living with the consequences of that. So, Absolutely. Uh, I'd, I'd like also, I'd like to take us on a little bit, right? I'd like us to peer forward a little bit and look further up at the kind of structural implications of this. And I do also have some thoughts on like how lefties should think of foreign policy, which I'll get to sort of after this section, because I think we brought up some interesting points there. But I, I like the U.S., right? As an imperial power, the U.S. needs Iran as an enemy 
just as they needed Iran as a friend before the Islamic Revolution so they could say, look, we're making Japan in the Middle East. It's going to be great. We're going to have this sort of you know, westernized country. Check out the miniskirts. Everyone's a fucking solid 10. Um, and one of my questions is, right, is what purpose will Iran serve uh, the U.S.? What's, what purpose does Iran serve the U.S. neoconservative imagination now that they're in a continued, a continued stalemate with what nowhere left to go but to escalate, I imagine, and vice versa? And what is the current threat posed to the entire fucking world by the U.S. bellicosity? Uh, I, I, I discussed this on uh, my popular front interview, which, which, you, should, which you should listen to. Uh, listen to his home. Uh, the, the response to the killing of Soleimani by a lot of pundits, uh, for example, at the Federalist, uh, there was that theater critic, I think, who was talking about, was it, is it John? Padoritz? No, not John Padoritz. I wish it was John Padoritz. Uh, he would have had something funny to say. Uh, <laughs> something sacrilege. Exactly. <laughs> uh, there, but he was, a, he was a theater critic for the Federalist. He was talking about, you, you know, if you run... If you run, if you attack New York City, if you attack my home, I'm gonna, I'm gonna level you, buddy. You, you, oh yeah, I saw this. Yeah, like, yeah. like <laughs> because because so, somebody from I think Chapo or somewhere else dug up a tweet of his from like six months before <laughs> that was like me zero uh, two hundred pound ceramic bathtub. I was trying to move up some stairs. One and also <laughs> like he was talking about like like how he he, he thinks divorce should be illegal. Something, yeah. <laughs> just, just a yeah. very, just a very normal, normal man. guy. Normal uh, guy. Yeah. I mean, we, we, we talked about uh, the, our last Iran episode. We talked about the NYPD and their weird yeah. mania for you. You better not do nothing to Staten Island. Oh yeah, no. Uh, Bill De Blasio came out, and I was, I was talking about this with a bunch of my friends. Like Bill De Blasio comes out and says, not only in a tweet, but also as a press conference, talking about you know, you know, we don't think that uh, you know Iran is gonna attack new york city but we got to be prepared it's like what you just contradicted your own statement why would you why would you do that what <laughs> there was also the lapd that made yeah. that response <laughs> uh the whole tweet about like oh we're, we're monitoring we're monitoring all potential threats and it's like uh, uh, uh guy listen, li- listen to our previous listen to our previous bonus episode if you'd like to hear the full the full rundown of the nypd and lapd's trying attempt to what i mean i don't do police brutality the, on the yeah. rgc with the, L- the lapd kind of makes sense because like iran had like uh iran has a lot of lost like former los angelinos that no um iran uh, LA has like a massive community of yeah, like Iranians who live yeah, there's, there's in this, there's Hollywood. this community of displaced people from Silver Lake living in Silver <laughs> they're gonna, they're, like, They know exactly how to take down Los Angeles, which is go there and all flush every toilet in New York. <laughs> the city will be leveled. What I was, what I was going to say is like, I don't, I don't understand how you, how like the NY, like how you could kind of combat the threat of Iran in like New York City when the subway is like, don't even. Well, I, don't, I don't understand what they would do. Yeah, they're, they're gonna, you, they're gonna want... sabotage the subway by like having somebody take a dump in a car. But just if you, yeah, if you all they all jump the turnstile at the same time. You want to hear the answers to that? Check episode. <laughs> You're trying to get um, us to stop doing the same episode <laughs> twice. I fucking hate yes. it when Qasem Soleimani's agents pull the emergency alarm during rush hour on every train in New York City. So, but one of the things. Okay, so I'm, I'm yanking yeah, us back yeah, on track yeah. here because. I do. I do think one of the risks here is that after a, after this exchange of of missiles, right, where we have the U.S. assassinating Qasem Soleimani, um, Iran attempting to sort of do a no a, a very measured and rational response, but 
fucking up, basically. Yes, put it lightly. Um, yeah, my concern is that because the U.S. needs Iran as, as an enemy, uh, any kind of meaningful long-term detente has been made even more impossible by this, obviously. I just realized but, something. This is what would... Yeah, what would be what would be a fair comparison for Americans? I don't know about British people. I guess for British people, it would be like if you know if Iran or some other you know much maligned if they, if they international had, if they had enemy blown up Matt Hancock accidentally uh, accidentally did the blitz while defending. They're like, oh, we 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 defended you know we defended London, but we accidentally blew up the subway and did another seven seven. But for America, it would literally be like, oh, if they would launch an intercontinental ballistic missile, we shot them all down, but we accidentally crashed a plane into the New World Trade Center. Yeah. It would basically be like that. Uh, but but what I what I want to think about right is that they is this has happened. Um, Iran Iran is like does have its its sort of ways of retaliating against the U.S. through its proxies. And my concern is that as this keeps going, we're now in a more unstable version of this dyad where they're, one another's actions are less predictable and where they have nowhere to go but up, really, unless they both sides make the choice to disengage. Again, I am not trying to both sides this here. Obviously, it's on the U.S. to disengage, but because of the mistake around the airliner... Iran has sort of lost its moral authority in this situation. Well, I, so my concern I, I, I have, is that it's more unstable. I, I have an optimistic answer to reassure you with this, right? Which is that if we say, like, assassination is sort of a known game, right? And, like, Iran and the US often through Israel, you know, we kill one of their guys, they kill one of our guys, something like that. Uh, like fucking uh, Mahmoud Mafouk in, um, in Dubai. Or mm. those Iranian nuclear physicists who got killed in Iran. Okay. I, I had a, I, I, Imad Munyeh as well was Imad someone Munier, I've written yeah. down as an um, example. Yeah, for sure. Um, if that's sort of understood as how you do assassination, the Soleimani thing is so singular and so stupid and so unlike those that it's sort of it's a it's a once in a lifetime type thing. And if uh, the people around Trump can get a handle on him, as seemed to be somewhat indicated by him waiting a day and then coming out giving a statement on fucking quaaludes, uh, then maybe something a bit more like normalcy uh, will sort of return to this. But that's that's mm. the optimistic I, I, I agree with that op Seamus? optimistic view. The issue is that, you know, we're not, we're, we're not unfamiliar with this concept. Uh, Trump's brain is basically soup. At this point, mm -hmm. um, sure. So if, but Trump has even if his brain is literally pulling out of his ears as we speak, he he has somewhat of a consistent worldview. Uh, when you when you have when you have him like in a room and you haven't attacked like if you're arguing with him about war, he'll initially say that he doesn't want war, he wants a deal, that kind of thing. It requires other people to speak with him for more than five minutes to immediately get him to switch that position. Yeah, he, he needs he needs a hot general. He needs, he needs to, a hot general to tell him what. So to the say. hot generals, which, which, and he 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 was flanked by two extremely hot generals during that <laughs> statement, which is look, folks, we, the, look the, Marines, we, the Marines. We've had the we've had the generals who are about equal to Tom Cruise in body, but better in face. Yeah. We need the Zac Efron generals. <laughs> <laughs> well, like my take on that whole address was that we there was to recruit the magic mic. <laughs> there, there was a hot general coup. I I don't know if Trump is well enough to know it, but I think he is now being piloted by some sexy generals. 
In, in any case, in any case, <laughs> there was, uh, I, I, I think the generals after the millennium challenge of 2002 and the absolute mm. disaster that that was, uh, I, I think yeah. American generals, I mean, this is, this is my impression. Uh, obviously I could be very, very, very wrong. Um, I think American generals know that the dangers of going directly into war with Iran and escalating it and escalating it and escalating it to that point would lead to. And that's why they gave Trump other options <laughs> to, to not do that. But, uh, my, I, I, don't, I don't know about generals, but I do think it's very funny and entirely plausible based on like the hell world that we live in where everyone has the worst and most petty motivations. That The reason why uh, the US Navy in particular does not want to fight a war with Iran is because it's dominated by this black shoe mafia of surface warfare officers who absolutely don't want to see their entire branch rendered obsolete by uh, getting sunk in the Straits yeah. of Hormuz. In so, the, during the Iran-Iraq just, war. Just something. Yeah, during the Iran-Iraq war there was... Um, it, the U.S. took a preemptive strike and sunk, I think, about half of Iran's operational navy. Uh, but since then, Iran has obviously invested into other things, uh, particularly speedboats. Boats. Uh, yeah. And as we saw displayed in the Millennium Challenge uh, 2002, um, uh, Colonel Van Riper, uh, amazing name. <laughs> yeah. uh, Incredible. He, he, he deployed those speedboats, those suicide speedboats, and he killed 2,000 uh, naval cadets in that war game. Yep. So, and the U.S. Navy, I don't think, has invested in speedboat warfare either. So I think... Uh, we're we're going to get that laser sooner or later, once we can, like, stop fucking uh, pulling around a gigantic battery yeah. for it. Well, I, I was thinking, I was thinking about this a little bit as well, right? How sort of this the endemic culture of graft and and corruption in the entire U U.S. imperial war machine uh, means that, like, I know we mentioned this before, but that any any kind like any kind of war in Iran would be a complete suicide mission. In as much as like, how are you going to achieve air superiority when it's raining and your main fighter plane is the F thirty five? How are you going to fight a naval battle when all of your confident admirals have been in in indicted for Fat Leonard related crimes? Oh, <laughs> 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 uh, just never, never, never let a flag officer anywhere near a hotel or an expense account or anything. <laughs> um. And I mean, look, yeah, they do have overwhelming superiority uh, in almost every respect, except like basic competence and anything yeah, yeah. working. I, I mean, yeah. if, if if you want me to go into at least some detail about how an invasion of Iran would play out, I can, if, if your listeners would like. Oh, p please, please war yeah. game, uh, you know what? getting stuck I'd in the Zagros Mountains for I'd two say years I'd, for us. I'd rather, I'd rather hear that than make fun of David Brooks. <laughs> okay. So, um, I'm going to... Yeah, th that, I, that's our new third segment. Ditch a third yeah. of the notes, and we're doing what happens if President Trump's moon man brain leads him to uh, invade Iran. I want to see stars and stripes and Tehran. Okay, so yeah. okay, it, let, let's let's just let's just say that the worst happens, and uh, everything is escalated to a certain point. Pompeo has gotten to Trump and decides that or pres president tom Cotton oh sorry in oh god don't yeah. don't don't do that 
<laughs> the lies, the lies. No, don't worry. I've already summoned Andrew Doyle as DCMS secretary. Uh, if Tom Khan is president, he might just honestly just nuke Iran, honestly. But let, 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 let's say for the moment that Tom Cotton has decided that he's going to take his chances invading the country of Iran. So let's say they decide to go through the Strait of Hormuz to make maybe a naval landing on the south of the country. Uh, immediately, they are faced with the fact that the Iranian Navy uh, is very, very experienced in asymmetric warfare, particularly with uh, naval forces. And they will likely do something similar to how the Millennium Challenge 2002 played out blow up a bunch of U.S. Navy boats, and that part of that mission is uh, pretty pretty fucked up, I guess is a way to be putting it. Um, Now, they could make a small landing on the south of the country, but the issue is there's flat land on that part of the country. But after that, uh, if you want to pull up a topographic map of Iran uh, to follow along here, uh, there's a massive mountain range uh, that pretty much covers the whole country up until Tehran. That's fine. You just drive the armored column straight through that at speed. Yeah. Uh, guys, elephants. Okay. Come on. Okay. okay. <laughs> Hannibal, Hannibal did it. Hannibal did, Hannibal did do this. Oh, However, God. we're, we're going to get. We're going to get a 12-strong movie, but it's just special forces guys wearing pakols on elephants. <laughs> <laughs> So, so after that point, okay, so obviously doing a land invasion uh, from the south, or potentially, let's say, uh, we keep doing that, we do Iraq Occupation 2.0, uh, because it appears to be the direction that we're going now by rejecting the Iraqi parliament's request for the United States to leave the country. Um, let's say that we use Iraq to bolster, to house U.S. forces that are going to eventually invade Iran. So maybe they managed to take Afos again. Uh, s- small areas near Loristan in Iran and Kurdistan. Uh, but again, you run into the same problem. You've got massive mountain ranges that are extremely difficult to traverse, and Iran can just as easily bomb those uh, necessary highways. And then, well, what's your third option? You could uh, potentially airdrop right to Tehran, uh, but there are obvious issues. That market garden feeling. Yeah. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> um, you were you were running the risk. If you want to airdrop into that general area around Tehran, you run into the massive risk of having anti-aircraft guns uh, basically taking out a large percentage of your force, especially now that I believe Iran has ordered uh, Russian anti-aircraft launchers. And after... There are, the arms embargo is set to expire, I believe, one and a half years from now. They're allowed to buy uh, many more modern weapons, which would be more, much more effective in that sense. But let's say, even based on all of these horrible, horrible factors that would make the invasion of Iraq uh, seem like a cakewalk, because of all the flat land yeah, that exists considering there. that Iraq is flat up until like Mosul, basically. Yeah. Like, it, yeah, it's a very different environment. Yeah. But also, surely, Iraq is not only flat, but Iraq was sort of considerably more fractious with like a weaker, a weaker state, a weaker military, weaker state. And you also had a massive military port in Kuwait where you could bring everything safely before. Yes. Yeah. You you basically and also um, on the on the note of the port, if you want to get support uh, for your military operation from maybe local forces, 
Um, you could not have picked the worst two that you could have called on Saudi Arabia and the UAE. Um, yeah, 50 guys carrying an F-16 with some Emirati prince in it. Just incredible. Yeah. There was, yeah. it's, it's like, it's, it, it's great. You're, you're, it's like, I, I didn't know that actually you could take a fighter jet off with rims. <laughs> Which 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 white Dior belt will I wear to the invasion? <laughs> okay, I can see it. Yeah, I can see, I can see it clearly. There was a there was okay. So there was there was an article in the National Interest, uh, I think about a year or so ago, that uh, postulated that the United Arab Emirates, you know, it's proven its worth in Yemen. So obviously, in a war with Iran, uh, it would steamroll them. <laughs> <laughs> sure. <laughs> and as we know, the war in Yemen ended two years ago. So, uh, yeah. you know, <laughs> sure. Um, Everything went fine. Uh, yeah. It, yeah, I don't have a lot of faith in any military force, most of whose budget is sunglasses. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's the thing, though. Like, like most of the most of the American military force's budget as well is like... Oh, I was, oh, in, yeah. I was including, like, naval aviators <laughs> in that. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. Well, no, it's the, the special sunglasses you need to see the heads-up display in the F-35 for yeah. $4 million. But also, I would say, too, that I mean, the U.S. just simply doesn't have enough forces that it can call upon to do this competently. And that's the thing that, that always yeah. want, makes me wonder when they start doing saber-rattling, because even under the assumption that you could call up a similar coalition to Iraq, when you think about the... Uh, the U.S., the U.K., the Australians, then a bunch of like really small strap hanger countries that came along uh, too. You for, you forgot Poland. Poland. I was going to mention Poland and uh, uh, places like um, Honduras and El Salvador, mm. uh, Uganda, places like that that also sent troops. Assuming you could even do that, you're still nowhere near enough to do to to, to be successful. The U.S., you know, when you look at uh, reserve component and active duty military, isn't going to really be able to manage more than like, I mean, it doesn't really have more than like a million people to call upon. And even then, that would be literally pulling everyone out from everywhere. Yeah. So that's hey, just there not is, feasible. There is, there is one upside, which is Captain Buttigieg, sir, we need your service again. <laughs> <laughs> we need you to drop a yeah, PowerPoint. Dro- dropping, <laughs> yeah. Although, like... Honestly, we just need like if you want to defeat Iran, it seems like the only way to do it is to like get McKinsey to give them cost cutting advice for their army, and then it just won't work anymore. <laughs> I mean, I guess that's that's the way that I've always seen it though. When I think about about a war with Iran, is that like even if you by 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 some miracle masterstroke you are able to achieve you know force on force superiority and actually beat back the Iranian military and, and occupy the country, the occupation is going to be first of all that conflict will be produce casualties on the order that people in America just have not dealt with since Vietnam at best at worst fucking Korea and beyond that an occupation is going to be so unbelievably deadly and just such so much worse than Iraq was that I just I don't think that you're even going to be able to kind of like slap a band-aid on it the way that they did in the Iraq war you know and and basically <laughs> allow anybody who didn't have like a massively violent felony to join the military and stop loss everyone they possibly can and you know hold res- uh, guard and reserve units in country for like 15 to 18 months that's not going to be enough and I don't know Seamus if that was what you were leading to uh when we talk about the sort of like how that the on the ground scenario would go out but like to me it's a disaster to try and invade and even if by a miracle chance you're successful you will never successfully occupy that yeah, country. There, there's kind of a three points 
that I want to elaborate on there. Um, we say we need more occupation troops that we could possibly imagine. It's probably even worse than that. There was a report by the Rand Corporation uh, during the Iraq War that stated, I believe that you need one soldier for every four people in a country to effectively occupy it. So when we're talking, or I think I believe one or one for every six. So the calculations that I did for that with Iran would require 1.6 million U.S. troops stationed around the country, which I believe is currently more than active duty soldiers exist with the United States, like Army itself. Oh, no, far more than that. Yeah. The United States Army is about 500-ish thousand people. I mean, it was getting up to about as much as six 600,000, but then after sequestration, they started to reduce it. But then you look at the Marine Corps is like 280,000 people, I think, active duty. Um, and there, yeah, you, you, I think there's, there's close to about a million ish if you count active duty military and national guard and reserves, but it's just obscene, obscene numbers. It's, it's an absurd number that, I mean, it would legitimately require you to pull everybody from everywhere from like Germany to Korea to like Diego Garcia and put them on a fucking boat to the Strait of Hormuz. And like, I'm, I just don't expect they could. I'm they kind of in favor of this to. now. It's, th this is accelerationism, right? Like, <laughs> you're, you're probably doing less imperialism if you go and get everybody invading Iran and getting owned than if you have them <laughs> spread out across like 500 <laughs> different bases. It's like Bombeo is yeah, like I a mean, communist. Oh, God. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the, well, the worse, the better. He's, yeah, deep cover Leninist. Um, so, in fact, all, all of this has actually come round to the point where I actually I want to read a couple of lines from this David oh, Brooks article do. because this discussion now underlines how just completely vapid the American pundit class that dragged the world into war in Iraq the first time is. Now, now before, before you start reading, so, I just um, want to ask you a question because yeah, I, yeah, I have not – I don't care for David Brooks. Uh, I, I, do not, I do not hate read his <laughs> content. Um, was he, was he active in the early 2000s? Was he for the Iraq war? Was he on record as supporting the Iraq war? Oh yeah. He, he, he was absolutely one of those within six months. It's oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. All right. Just, just want to give my context. Yeah. All right. All right. I'm ready. Uh -huh. Yeah. Uh, I, inter interestingly, uh, when David Brooks wrote the second mountain, uh, about the road to character, <laughs> he was referring to the Zagros mountains. <laughs> was that the one about leaving his um, wife? <laughs> yes. That's the, one, that's the one where he, he, he cl he climbed Mount Research Assistant, um, and that was going to be listing. Um, like a fucking so horse. The article, the article is from the New York Times, and it's called "Trump Has Made Us All Stupid." Yeah, I mean, you're not wrong. Okay. Not wrong. I mean, he's not wrong. But it's, a, but it's about oh, Iran. I'm, I'm, I'm excited. Okay, all right. <laughs> the decline of discourse in the anti-Trump echo chamber. Okay, uh, all right. <laughs> I love what this is doing to all of you. Donald Trump, he writes, is impulse-driven, ignorant, narcissistic, and intellectually dishonest, said David Brooks into a mirror. <laughs> um, so, so you'd think that those of us in the anti-Trump camp would go out of our way to show we're not like him, that we are judicious, informed, mature, and reasonable. But the events of the past week have shown that the anti-Trump echo chamber has become a mirror image of Trump himself. Of course, David Brooks, as always, is just writing about his own anxieties that he is uh, <laughs> impulse-driven, ignorant, narcissistic, and intellectually dishonest. But I digress. Uh -huh. 
For example, there's a complex policy problem at the heart of this week's Iran episode. It's not fucking uh, Game of Thrones. <laughs> I know he means episode, like, but still. It may as well Iran- be a box. Yeah, David Brooks, he's not affected by Iran- this, so it's an episode to him. No. No. Yeah, uh, it's, I think that's absolutely right. Uh, the Iran, Iran is not- throne. Interestingly, Seamus, this might be interesting. This was news to you, I bet. But did you know that, quote, Iran is not powerful because it has a strong economy or military? (laughs) I mean... What's up? Yeah, Iran isn't doing great right now economically. Uh, What's his point? What? Uh, It's powerful because it sponsors militias across the Middle East, destabilizing regimes and spreading genocide and sectarian cleansing. Oh, it's like a franchise. I I, I don't. I mean, I I personally, I'm not I'm not I'm not a fan of the Zonk Republic. I'm not a fan of its its foreign policy. However, I I don't Uh, cut his mic. Cut his mic. (laughs) 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 Is is he asserting that Iran's military itself isn't like powerful? What? Yeah, what? like, like yes. um, the the reading we had on our last Iran episode, which you should go listen to, where Charles Moore from the Telegraph just says some people say Iran has the like strongest military in the world that the US is going to fight since Korea. I don't oh, think okay, so. Okay, okay. If if, if, yeah, I, if, I, if, I, if I may, just tiny t- one minute tangent. If if I may. Okay. Yes, go for so it. the whole it, around the around the Middle East, uh, particularly through the Syrian civil war and the war in Yemen. We've basically seen that the Syrian military, um, the Saudi military, the UAE military are completely dysfunctional and don't know what they're doing. Fucking dog nepotism yeah. all the sunglass way down. Sunglass budget. But sunglass budget yeah. role. The, the Iranian military <laughs> is successful. And the reason why its expertise uh, was was wanted by Bashar al-Assad and what, that's what turned the tide against the rebels was because Iran knew what military strategy was, was experienced in it, trained its fighters in the war of attrition for decades and decades and decades through both war experience and training schools. Oh my God. It's not, it's not the Iraqi military where it's just, you've got 400,000 people just throw, throw them at people. Like there, there's a, there's strategy to it. That's why they're formidable. But okay. Are, are you suggesting that Bashar al-Assad, what turned his fortunes around, was Iranian advisors and not like fifty Russians squatting? Oh, I, 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 I don't <laughs> want to go into the logistics of, of the, the Russian squatters, the squad kings. That's for another time. So I, 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 I would just let me let me just throw something in there too, because I, I I've spoken to people you know who at least have some, if not necessarily expertise in the region, like have dealt with some of like the U.S. I don't know what you describe it as sort of enablers who are monitoring things in Syria. And somebody that I knew who, I mean, I definitely disagree with politically because he's definitely still like pretty, pretty neoconish after having been in the military, basically said that in his, he said that, that Hezbollah and people like the Iranian military were basically deploying what you might describe as like brigade sized elements operating in Syria. And so they had, they just been getting experience. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't know if that jives with your, with your, uh, with your observations, Seamus, but like, to me, it just strikes me that, you know, there's been this war going on for almost a decade. They've been fighting in it at not just like a send 10 guys to fucking, so they, we get them off our hands level, but legitimately at like above a tactical level, like what you would say, like operational or strategic. And that they're going to, you know, transfer that experience into defending their home country. If yeah, we- the IRGC has been very heavily involved in the Syrian civil war since the beginning. And that... That, that level of experience that they're taking with them in not only fighting the rebels, but fighting ISIS, the, the force that was about to 
conquer vast swathes of both Iraq and Syria, that's going to come in pretty obviously in handy when you're fighting the United States, even if it's the United States is obviously far more of a formidable power than the Islamic State. It's, it's war experience that they would similar, not have gotten. Similar ideology in places. Yeah. It, 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 ever since the Iraq war, the Iran-Iraq war, there are still those commanders in place who have the extensive experience of doing trench warfare and attrition warfare. But the newer, younger recruits, that experience in Syria is going to assist them greatly if there is a war with the United States, which I hope doesn't happen. But it, it obviously is going to be somewhat transferable. Yeah. However, I, I would like to please, pull please, please, to, uh, please, to please, please, because all, all of that that we just said, you know, like a discussion of the material conditions underlining sort of why Iran actually is a formidable military. Uh, David Brooks disagrees. He said, no, uh, it's not. It's not powerful. It's actually mean. What? And its strength is its meanness. <laughs> <laughs> So how I mean, we... that, that does seem like a, a key part of military success is being yeah. mean. Uh, so he <laughs> says, close with and be mean to the enemy. <laughs> <laughs> so he says, he says, we're not going in to, and we're not going to go in and destroy the militias. So how can we keep them in check so they don't destabilize the region? Again, said David Brooks into a fucking mirror. That's the hard problem, one that stymied past administrations. Uh, what if we did more airstrikes? <laughs> the decision to undertake this operation is a matter of weighing risk and reward, <laughs> as opposed to, you know, just, you know, <laughs> just fucking around Brooks. and finding out. <laughs> yeah. And after the Soleimani killing, you saw American security professionals, and here's where David Brooks is David Brooks, talk in the language of balancing <laughs> risk and reward. Stanley McChrystal, a retired oh, general, say, and Michael oh, Mullen, oh, a retired admiral, oh, thought it was hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Whereas Susan the Rice thought it wasn't. Hold on. Stanley McChrystal. Like, retired. Stanley McChrystal. But, yeah. but, they made a whole movie about he, how Alice, he was Alice. stupid. It, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, we've, we've killed Seamus just by mentioning uh, Stanley McChrystal's name, and quite rightly so. Uh, uh, yeah, he was the hunter killer. Just when you hear his name, you just die of laughing and embarrassment. <laughs> his name um, is a killing word. <laughs> uh, but in the anti-Trump echo chamber, that's not how most people were thinking. Led by Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, they avoided the hard, complex problem of how to set boundaries around the militias. Instead, they pontificated on the easy see, question not actually on the table. Should we have a massive invasion that's, of that's Iran? That's always been on the but table. The, prob the problem with militias is they don't respect consent, and they're not good giving all game. Oh god! I want to. I want to yell when I'm in a hotel. I can't. I, I can't express myself. Oh god! Don't go full Christian on it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, should, should we have a massive invasion of Iran? Why were you? Uh, so it's like, yeah, David. You would you rather we had the professional, measured language yeah. with which you and Stanley fucking McChrystal we just, restlessly advocated and persecuted yeah, we, the invasion we just, of Iraq, we which just went so well to, in terms of stabilizing the region. We I just might have to do the McChrystal Obama strategy of. Targeted strikes, uh, opportunistic use of special forces, nothing will go wrong with this. Also cover up friendly uh, fire on Pat Tillman. Let's yeah, do that again. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so he's saying most of this week's argument about the Middle East wasn't really about the Middle East. It was just about ourselves. <gasps> Democrats defend terrorists. Republicans are warmongers. Actual Iranians are just bit players in our imperialistic soap opera. The passive recipients of our greatness are perfidy. Dude, I mean, th this, not... is the, this is the picture of Garfield looking at the sign with no Garfields and being like, God, I wonder who that's for. <laughs> yeah, and it's... it's... Ugh, fucking hell. Like, it's just the, the pure, blithe ignorance 
of what it means to be critically engaged in foreign policy is actually infuriating to me as it permeates the sort of great and good of the press of both the US and the UK. Mm. Like are, the the fact that the, in the UK there are pundits and also politicians who are saying, no, the problem is Iran didn't stick to the 2015 JCPOA. You have to respect the deal and we're worried that you're not respecting the deal. What? It's like it's the incredible failure of thought or at least at, at best it's not a failure of thought it's just massive sort of cynicism about the intelligence of the populations of the countries which they're either commenting to or ruling over yeah. <sighs> and I mean this is kind of one thing I, I know we're going so long but I wanted to add yeah. one more thing one tiny thing oh we didn't even about- do my fucking conspiracy theory <laughs> oh. ah well next oh, episode sorry. next time we will yeah. do it um <laughs> We were like, when you, what's something we've been talking about today, right? And I, I kind of want to bring this together on like how people on the left can think of foreign policy criticism. Because it's true. If you go like Elizabeth Warren and you say, look, Soleimani was a bad guy. He did a lot of bad things around the region. So it was right. It, but we, we killed him in the wrong yeah, way. We, we didn't you're fill su- out the paperwork. Yeah, yeah. Then you're a sucker and you're playing into the hands of, um, of the neocons. Yeah, I, I, I hate to you, say it. I hate to say it, but the gray zone cranks are actually right with their first instinct being, uh, fuck you, that's not a missile. Uh, you, yeah. <laughs> you, you're an American dog and a cunt. But the, problem, and, yeah. but the problem is, the problem is, right, and this is something, uh, uh, Seamus, that you talked about on, on Popular Front, right? Like, like if you are, like, 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 Qasem Soleimani was also, like, a virulent anti-communist. Like, the guy did not like the trade union movement. He was spent a lot of his early career suppressing socialists. Like, we still have to find a way to understand that these aren't good people. But at the same time, without ever giving any credence to the neoconservative movement, because then that that is going to then weaponize us admitting that, like, yeah, it's this is not a this is still like not a good guy. And I don't understand how we can square that circle. And people like David Brooks do it by putting on the helmet that makes you stupid. And <laughs> I mean, and, and then, you know, the, then there are the, you, you know, the yeah. answer is it's what? something that had been previously monopolized by the like late 2000s liberal blogosphere where they just did the truly, truly insufferable thing of being like, oh, you want good policies from your candidate for president? Well, why don't you put on your big boy pants? Because we live in the real world instead of doing magic. And we should just do that. That's just, that's all <laughs> realpolitik is. It's just be like, yeah, okay, find, find me uh, a, a good guy in, like, fucking any government ever. Right. Like, mm-hmm. who, who is the guy in that role for, like, uh, who, who runs a military or a paramilitary force and who goes around uh, like advancing their nation state's interests through this complex mix of militias and money and everything like that. Who is the good guy who does that? Name them. Yeah. I mean, I, Seamus, I'm interested to sort of hear your reactions on this as well, because like I've been, I've been following your commentary on this. I found it to be quite balanced in terms of being very anti-imperialistic with, while still being Yeah, it, it's... It's, it's, and I know if any of my Iranian friends are listening to this, I know you're probably going to hate what I'm going to say here. Um, it's a very, very, very difficult line to cross because when you, when you preface all of your statements by saying that Soleimani was a bad guy, you, like, I don't want it to be the case, but neocons always then come in and say, well, you know, if Soleimani was such a bad guy, then why, why are you against killing him? Why aren't, you, why aren't you in support of him being killed? 
And I mean, I think there's something I can jump in really fast just to say, because I think for UK listeners, which is a lot of our audience would get this, think about the extent to which we all knew there were problems with Corbyn in the leader's office and just like with some of the things in the Labor Party. But you could not say it because if you did, the worst people on the planet would be like, oh, see, well, that's why you deserve to fail and we need Blairism again. Like there was no way to say it without basically opening yourself up to the worst, dumbest criticism. It's an in-group conversation. We should not be like caping for Soleimani. We shouldn't be saying that he was, you know, an amazing military hero. That he was, um, he was just a great man. I don't think that we should be doing that. But at the same time, when we talk about if if we are if 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 you are pressed on the issue of if Qasem Soleimani, if you admit that Qasem Soleimani is such a bad guy, then why don't you support killing him? One, you have to address the fact that. Killing a foreign official uh, in a foreign country sets an incredibly horrible precedent that could easily be exploited by America's adversaries, if you're going from that angle. And at the same time, if you're talking with leftists and you say the Qasem Soleimani is a bad guy and they say, well, do, do you support the neocons? Do you support his murder then? Well, well no. Uh, American mili- the, the, the American military that took him out the people that authorized that, operate, that operation, the people that got us to this point, are similarly way bad, if not way worse people. You, you, you cannot be a fan of both of these people, but you recognize the fact that killing Qasem Soleimani is such an unbelievably reckless action. You should just focus, if you can, just focus on that. The fact that it's incredibly reckless, that it could lead to a war that would kill millions of people almost inevitably, um, that it, it destabilizes the international order by establishing a precedent of killing foreign officials uh, in governments without war being declared, and all of those other things in, involving international law. Mm. And, and, and calling them terrorists, too, which is oh, okay. The IRGC yeah. terrorist designation is one of the dumbest things mm-hmm. that I can think of, because even if the IRGC is involved in incredibly horrible actions, around the world. The RGC is a state arm. People can be drafted into it. Um, They run malls. You can work at an IRGC operated mall. Seal of the Prophet's construction company. Yeah. <laughs> like, are, are you, like, are these people all, these people who were drafted in the IRGC, are these people all who like work with IRGC related construction companies or, or uh, storefronts? Are these all people accessories to terrorism? But also, also in where they are sponsors of, if you want to say terrorist groups, I'm not going to dispute that Hezbollah is a terrorist group, say, uh, it's not just to fuck around. There is a coherent foreign policy vision at work there, uh, yeah. and a vision of Iranian and to a lesser extent Shia interests. Uh, that's, it's not the same. You can't compare it to, say, Islamic State. Uh, no, no. There's there's a coherent foreign there's coherent foreign policy to it. It's I, I think a lot of people perceive Qasem Soleimani as that kind of Osama bin Laden kind of guy sure. who is a rogue who lo- who just loves to blow things up. But there, that's really not the case, and that's why killing him was so reckless. Is because hmm. it, it 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 doesn't fuck that up in a way that would be beneficial to the U.S. It fucks it up in that it makes them more aggressive. 
and it makes it everything much more difficult to counter if you're from the perspective of the United States. Yeah. I mean, I was thinking about this from the perspective of, like, say you would, uh, if, if you had a situation in which Iran and the United States were operating in a similar area, like, for example, the fight against ISIS in Syria. And if, like, somebody on the order of Jim Mattis or Dave Petraeus before he <laughs> disgraced himself by sex. Uh, <laughs> Climb Mount Research we're, we're, Assistance. Yeah, we're doing, a, we're doing a battlefield rotation and the Iranian military decided to fucking kill them with a drone strike. People would lose their minds, and that's what we did. Yeah, and, and it's like, was he a combatant? Yes, but the idea—I I strongly agree with what you said—that the idea that somebody who's a representative of a state body uh, is now being designated a terrorist because we think they're mean—that um, doesn't really bode well if you want to treat every American or Commonwealth or NATO soldier as a terrorist because you think they're mean when they're being mean. If you want to use that d- definition, like, yeah. There was there was a there was a decision by the Iranian parliament uh, just a couple of days ago. Though they've done this a couple of times before, uh, where they designated the entire Department of Defense uh, as a terrorist organization. Mm. So it's already happening to a certain extent. Mm. So before we go any further, I would just like to note we've been recording for an enormous amount of time, and I think that uh, does leave us on what I might say a chilling premonition of things to come. I have one very quick under a minute thing. Uh, if you. Yes, if if you want to do the leftist thing of being like, oh, so you don't accept that Iran is 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 good, I agree. The one thing you should read about is uh, the executions of Iranian communists in 1988, which play a large part in how the MEK got the way that it is. Um, read about that; it fucking is extremely haunting, and it, you will it, it will put the critical in your critical support. I, I would, I would, I would suggest that as well. Uh, reading up on that is is an extremely harrowing experience. If you're wondering why we, if you're wondering why we aren't like you know banging the drum for for um, if you wonder why we're not like maybe banging the sort of drum that you might expect a leftist podcast to be banging in the way that we're not banging it, that's a big part of why. Yeah, read read about the um the precise questioning procedures they went through to decide who they were going to execute because uh, yeah, so. But on on all of that, I I mean, all realpolitik always leaves everybody sort of. Uh, what is it, what was it? It's like um, you know, it's it's like like a pig and shit. It's uh, that all the all the warmongers are sort of you know happy as clams to be warmongering. Uh, everyone's dirtier for having for having gotten involved. Um, and you don't really know what to do next. No, but th- but but this is it. This is the world. Uh, this is this is this is what we live with. We have to make the best of it that we can. Uh, yeah. It's complicated. It's messy. There are base. There are no clean storylines. There are no clean endings. No this story. No, no episodes. Yeah. Uh, yeah, there are no episodes. David Brooks, you fucking vacuous moron. <laughs> um, so we are, but we are, we are going to have to leave this episode uh, at that. Um, so Seamus, I want to thank you so so much for coming on and talking to us today. This has been yeah, incredibly was, interesting this, to this hear you. This was so insightful. Thank you. So thank you. Yeah, it was my um, pleasure. Yeah. Uh, so, where else can people find you online? And I, to our listeners, I insist that you do. Uh, well, uh, on Twitter, you can find me at uh, at Seamus underscore Malik M A L E K. Uh, if you want to find my portfolio of stuff, uh, it's at my website at uh, Seamus hyphen Malik and I'm going to spell it out here. Uh, warning: S E A M U S hyphen M-A-L-E-K-A-F-Z-A-L-I dot com. Apologies. Uh, 
Everyone note that he used a Z. So mark that uh, down on your bingo cards. Only apologizing for the Seamus part because Irish <laughs> names. Yeah. Um, so otherwise, uh, don't forget our, our beloved co-host Milo Edwards is doing a show in Liverpool. You should grab some tickets to that. Um, also, you should remember that we've got the Patreon uh, it's five bucks a month. You can subscribe to that as well. Check out our previous Iran coverage, which was much more boisterous, I would say. Mm. Yes. Yeah, it was definitely it was much a dumber. experience. Yes. Um, um, it's, a good, it's a good accompaniment, I think. Yeah. So this is part one and part two of the, <laughs> of the Iran saga. First then as tragedy. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and um, otherwise, uh, yeah, our theme song is Ginseng. Uh, Jinse- here we go by Jinsang. Find it on Spotify. And yeah, just once again, Seamus, thank you so much for coming on. This was a real pleasure. No problem. All right. See you, everybody. Bye. Bye.